Well, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we this morning? Sweet. It's exciting. Uh, big win yesterday. I feel, come on, A&M. I feel good about it. feel good about this one. Um, so uh, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Garland. If you are new with us, this is your first time joining us, uh, just hit that QR code right there. You can go out to the foyer later, and uh, we'd love to meet you, talk with you, get to know your story, and welcome you here to, if you're moving to our city or at least to our church, we'd love to welcome you and let you know what's going on uh, around here. My wife uh, and I, every, every Sunday before the week, we sort of get together and talk about uh, what's going on, what's on the calendar, what we need to know about. And in that same vein, I've got like four things that we need to talk about real fast, and then we'll, we'll hear uh, a story. If you would mind, hit the next one for me. If you, uh, if you are not plugged into a community group, a small group, we would love to get you connected. We've got community groups of every shape and size. Uh, we've got community groups from every, for every age and demographic here in our church we want to get you connected where you can do life together with other Jesus followers and be uh, accountable with each other and sit down and look people in the eye. And so hit that QR code or once again, go talk to us out in the booth. We'd love to get you connected to a small group. Other things going on for you and for me to be aware of. Uh, coming up in just a few weeks, Women's Ministry is having their, their backyard retreat. And it's an awesome time for the women of our church uh, just to get together and share life together and, and be able to be vulnerable with each other and study the scriptures together and worship together. And so you'll see one QR code for that retreat. The other one is for uh, all of the Bible studies that are gonna be launching here as part of our women's ministry. Uh, if you're a woman in the room and you're not connected to a small group, that sounds like something, you're like, man, I need that, then hit one of these QR codes right now. I know we're putting, I'm just throwing QR codes at you this morning. Let me give you one more. Uh, we have Merge. It's our premarital eight-week experience, small group experience, and it starts next Sunday, we're actually gonna close down registration tomorrow. So if you are getting married, if you are engaged or seriously dating, or you're the parent of someone who's engaged or seriously dating, or you know someone who's engaged or seriously dating, we would love to get uh, them to go through this eight-week uh, small group experience. We're talking about marriage, what it looks like, uh, expectations, it's really fun. And like I said, it'll start right in the Student Center next Sunday. Um, now, as far as uh, our last, this isn't a QR, uh, a QR code, but we recently have uh, welcomed in new members to our church. And if you are, if you were a part of our recent Discover process and your name's on this screen, would you stand for me if you're in the room? We got anybody in the room? Give them a hand, yes. Welcome to, welcome to official membership joining what we're doing here as a church. Uh, and just thank y'all. Uh, you, can, you can grab a seat. Um, and we'd love to invite you to, to join our church, what we're doing here to advance the gospel in our city. With that in mind, um, I'm gonna introduce y'all uh, to one of my friends, and he works with us on the college team. He's doing an incredible job, moved here a year and a half ago. This is Josh Barnard. Give him a hand. <clears throat> He's gonna give y'all an update on what goes on here uh, on Sunday night and spread out all throughout our city uh, with our college ministry. So Josh, take it away. Hey, let me go ahead and do this announcement, okay? Yeah, you got, I'm gonna step down, yeah. Uh, so to, this morning you're gonna hear a lot, of, a lot of different stories and a big part of my story actually happened nine years ago this fall when I was a sophomore in college. Uh, a family, a couple at my, at my school decided, hey, we wanna, we wanna invite young guys into, into our home and teach them what it looks like to actually practically follow Jesus. So we learned how to pray, we learned how to read the Bible, we learned how to do just like the daily 
disciplines of following Jesus, and that completely altered my, my story, completely put, put me on the direction of following Jesus. And now nine years later, I get to be on the other side, and this week we actually started eight different small groups with over, well, over 100 college students from the U of A and surrounding schools where these students are getting to go into people's homes with great leaders and get to practically see, hey, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus in college and then for the rest of your life. And so that's been such, a, such an honor to be, get to be on the other side of that and to get to be a part of that. And as Garland said, Sunday nights, we, we've been having close to 500 students on a weekly basis in this room worshiping Jesus, declaring that he is our Lord and he is our King. I mean, it's, yeah, it's incredible just to, to get to witness that. And so uh, if you ever, if you know any college students or if you are a college student, come tonight, uh, seven o'clock. We'd, we'd love to see you right here in this room and get to worship, worship the Lord together. So as we continue to worship this morning, I'm gonna pray for us and uh, bow your heads with me. Father, we just thank you that you are our king. Lord, that you have not left us alone or rejected. Lord, that you have brought us into your family, that you have declared us as sons and daughters. And so this morning as we hear stories as we worship you, I pray that we would, we would rejoice. Lord, we would rejoice that you have brought us from death to life and from darkness to light. And so none of this matters without you. So we love you and pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, if you're new with us, you're probably like, what is going on on the stage? This is not something that we do uh, a lot but we did it a couple months ago, and it was so encouraging to hear each other's voices fill the room and to sing. And so this morning, we are all the worship leaders. We're all leading each other, and we're all going to sing together. Hey, this first song, as Garland and Josh both mentioned, today's going to be filled with story. And as I think about this first song and, and how my story fits into it is um, I grew up in the church. I grew up at a, at a little Christian high school where I was tested on my knowledge of who God was. And so I had a lot of mental mind understanding of who God was. I could tell you about his character. I could tell you a lot of facts about him. And just over the last decade, the last seven or eight years, the Lord has begun to let me have a heart knowledge of who he is by experiencing who he is. Not knowing, not just knowing who he is, but walking with him and learning about his true character and in my life. No longer is it rules to follow, but it's a relationship to pursue. And so this song reminds me of that this morning. So would you stand with us? And let's lead each other in worship this morning. Holy, 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 let's sing it.
God, may that be our prayer this morning. God, that we would lift our eyes and look to seek you. God, that you be our vision. You be our standard. You be what we desire to chase after so that we can feel the fullness, the complete joy that we find in you and in you alone. God, may we bend the knee to nothing else but you, King Jesus. Father, we love you. We praise your holy name. It's in your son's name. Amen. Y'all grab a seat. Y'all sound good this morning. Really good. If you've never sat up in the front, um, I I may encourage you at some point, try it. Just hearing the voices of everybody in this room, all of our individual voices may not sound good great, or maybe maybe you don't feel good, or maybe you just never learned how to sing, but all of our individual voices come together, and it forms this amazing sound uh, in this room, and I just, I just was moved sitting here listening uh, to y'all sing. Uh, we all have stories. We like to tell stories. We relate to each other largely through stories. We love hearing great stories told, like, like a, a good example is this story of last week. We're going to be telling that story for decades to come, and by the time that story is being told, like 12 years from now, it's going to be like we beat Texas by 94. We had 4,000 rushing yards, and they had like 12 total yards. By the time it's told 10 years from now, my son, I got to take to the game, and he got more and more angry with Texas as the game went along, and I was like, yes, I've indoctrinated him to the Razorback fandom. And when the fans rushed the field, I said, Titus, this is how it's supposed to be. Uh, but we love telling and hearing and sharing and being a part of great stories. And authors and sociologists have noted this uh, for, for years. They've seen this. And let me just give you a couple of them speaking on it. They said, the ability to see our lives as stories and share those stories with others is at the core of what it means to be human. We use stories to order and make sense of our lives, to define who we are, even to construct our realities We recount our dreams, narrate our days, and organize our memories into stories we tell others and ourselves. I love this last line. As natural-born storytellers, we respond to other stories because they are deeply and intimately familiar. In light of that, I thought just, we're in church, I thought I might just share some of my spiritual story. Wanna hear it? I heard a sure. That makes me feel good. Sure, yeah, I'll take that. Um, Sure, kind of non-committal. Um, here's kind of my spiritual story. Uh, I, I grew up in Little Rock, but then uh, most of my growing up days were in Northwest Arkansas up here in Bentonville. So I'm a Southerner. I've been, I grew up in this state. And as a Southerner, um, I kind of knew that I was supposed to be moral. Like I'm supposed to be a good person, a good kid. I'm trying to, to live right and do right and act right. And uh, my parents divorced when I was two, and I'll talk more about that later. And, and as a result, uh, we went to church at one parent's house, and we went to church at the other parent's house. But what I learned in going to church early on was, no matter what was going on in your story, no matter what was going on in your life, no matter what brokenness you may be struggling with, or what doubt you may be struggling with, or maybe even what sin or addiction you might be walking through, church was a place that you told nobody about any of that. So when you go to church, uh, it's a place where people go to act like they have things figured out and they have things together, and, uh, and then you leave and you go back to your regular life. And that was kind of my conception of what church was. And if you had asked me, uh, in especially like middle school, junior high years, uh, what is God like? This is probably what I would have told you, and maybe some of you can relate to this. The, my conception of God went something like this. 
Uh, he does exist. He's really powerful. Um, he, uh, he created the world, and he's a little bit grumpy. Here's how I know this. Uh, he gave me a list of rules to follow, and that list of rules is virtually impossible to keep, and he knows it, but he gave them to us anyway, and he said, if you fail at any one of these, I'm not just gonna kill you, I'm gonna send you to hell forever. And that was my conception of God, and yet somehow he killed Jesus instead of me, and that was supposed to be good news for me. And so for me, growing up, that created a lot of guilt inside, a lot of shame inside, because I knew that list, I was busted, and I was, I was deeply afraid, because that story just made me feel really fearful, and into that story, enter uh, a group of guys, uh, my cell group and my cell group leader. Uh, so my cell group leader, his name was Joe. He was a, just a regular dude in Bentonville. He was a police officer, and he, he met with us, knuckleheaded uh, junior high and high school students, all from seventh grade through 12th grade, and he showed us what it looked like to love his wife and to love his kids and to, and to have a relationship with Jesus. And I was like, I don't, this is different than what I experienced. And he invited me to go uh, meet with him, another guy, at Daylight Donuts. He used to be on Main Street off the old square. The new square is a little pretentious in Bentonville now, the old original square. And uh, it was right off that square. And uh, we, met for we met at 645 at Daylight Donuts, and we went through the Book of Romans. I have no idea why he chose that. Uh, I have no idea how any of it made any sense to me. Um, but in the midst of that letter that Paul wrote nearly 2,000 years ago, and this man and his love for me, God began to change my life. And he showed me what it looked like to be loved by God, that I was adopted as a son of God. And though I still have tons of struggle and tons of doubt and tons of failure in my own life, everything about my conception of God got shifted going into 10th grade. And my life was changed. We love sharing stories. And it might just bring the question, like, what's your story? Like, what's your story? And I want you to be thinking about that as we, as we work through uh, our passage this morning. We're gonna, I'm calling this All Great Stories. You know, we say that all the time. All great stories have a twist, or all great stories begin with this, or all great stories. We're gonna be looking at 1 Timothy chapter one as we continue uh, our, our study of this ancient letter that Paul wrote to his friend, Timothy. And here's gonna be our three points as we work through it here this morning for those of you taking notes, which should be, I hope, most of you. Here's the three things. Your story really matters. But secondly, your story can't be everything. And lastly, your story must be part of another. Point one, your story really matters. Your story can't be everything. Your story must be a part of another. If you have your Bibles, I hope you brought your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter one. While you're turning there or scrolling to that on your phone or whatever that may look like for you or Googling it, let me give you an additional resource. If you are going, man, I just want more on these, on these Timothy talks. I want more from Sunday morning. We actually have tons more that we study and we'd love to get to talk about, but they only, they only give us 30 minutes here and you don't want more than that. If we were up here for more than that, you'd be like, I can't do it. So we only get 30 minutes. There's a lot of stuff that we end up having to leave out. That's what Sermon Notes is for. I know last week it wasn't working. If you are a podcaster, uh, go to Sermon Notes uh, with your Apple Pod, wherever you get your podcast. And uh, this is for you as, you're, as you personally study through these letters, as you lead other people in discipleship or small group. But if you're just, uh, just trying to understand the Bible better. So check it out. Let us know if it's helpful. Let us know if it's not good. We're, we're trying something new here. If you don't like it, if you want us to change this, uh, let us know. Let's dive in. First Timothy chapter one. Uh, we gotta get our context from last week if you weren't here. Paul had been speaking to Timothy and by extension to the church in this ancient city of Ephesus, and he tells them, hey, be careful. Watch out for false teaching and for false teachers. 
And you can spot them because what they say and the way they act and what they teach, it won't conform to the good news, this gospel story concerning the glory of the blessed God. And then everything after this comma is gonna be a very, it's an intentional digression, but a digression nonetheless of Paul. He says that gospel message was entrusted to me. And that begins from chapter one, verse 12 to 17, Paul, Paul beginning to tell part of his story. He says, he begins it here, verse 12. He says, he entrusted the gospel to me. And by the way, hey, Timothy, I, I thank Messiah Jesus. He's our king. He gave me strength. I, I thank him. Why? He says, he, he considered me trustworthy. He, he appointed me, even me, to service. Paul it's like he can't go a day, almost like he can't go a moment without reflecting on and being wholly amazed that the grace of God would intersect his story. He, does it, he, he talks about his story over and over and over and over again. Let me give you a couple of instances. In the, in the, letter, to the, the letter to the Galatians, he's gonna tell them, hey, let me tell you about my previous life in Judaism. He says, I was a persecutor of the, of the church, and I tried to stop this thing. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. I was zealous. I had zeal. I had passion. People respected me. That's who I was. And I was going after this thing called the way of Jesus, this thing called the church. I was persecuting this. In, the, in, the, in his sermons that he gives in the book of Acts, recorded for us in the book of Acts, he gives his story over and over and over again. It's like he can't help himself. Here's one example of it. He says, let me tell you about who I am. I, I'm a Jew. I'm born in Tarsus. I was brought up in the city. I got a great education. It says, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. And I went, I was so zealous that I went as far as to persecute the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women. And by the way, when Jesus changed my life, he goes, I was on my way to Damascus. I was making an over 100-mile journey to go find Christians there and round them up and bring them to prison. He's a Pharisee. Now, comment on Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a Jewish religious leader. And here's what they believed. The Pharisees believed that if they were wholly zealous and passionate to obedience to God's law, if we will be obedient to the Torah, then God will send his Messiah and he'll liberate us from our captors. By this time, it's Rome. If God would, if we would just be obedient, if we could get the people to be obedient, then our long, dark exile will be over and God will bring our kingdom back. And Paul was so zealous for obedience to the Torah. He was so zealous for his understanding of the Torah, his desperate hope to bring the Messiah, he had in fact missed the Messiah. And he was persecuting the Messiah's people. In the letter to Timothy, he sums it up this way. He says, I was once a blasphemer. To be a Jewish man in this time, for Paul to say, I was a blasphemer, that you don't get any worse. It's to bring shame upon the name of God, to speak untruthfully about who his God is, to, in fact, reject the very answer that God had sent in the form of Jesus. He says, I was that. In devotion to Torah, I had missed what Torah was pointing to. It's not only that, I persecuted the followers of God's Messiah, and this last word, NIV is translating it for us as, I was a violent man. It's the Greek word hubristes. 
We get our word hubris from this idea, hubristes. I was a, a person with hubris. Now, what's the idea behind this? Hubr- to be a hubristes is to so value me, my tribe, my family, to so elevate me and my tribe and my family that it would, in fact, even spill over into violence if given the right conditions. It's to, to bolster myself and to be so self-centered in thinking about me and my people and my tribe only that I look down on all those around me to the point where I would even go to other, other us, them and us. And it would even lead to the point of violence. We got some hubristes, by the way, in our world right now. Hubristes, because I was ignorant. But look what he says, verse 14. It's like he can't help but reflect on his story. He says, but the grace of our Lord, the word here, poured out abundantly. It was hyper poured out. If I have a hyperactive kid, which I have one of those, that means they overact. They're over the top. This is being poured out with the word hyper infused in front of it. It's abundantly poured out God's grace on me along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's, the, here's, here's Paul's reflection. It's like he can't go a moment without thinking about it. Me, even me, a, a persecutor, a blasphemer, a hubristes, God intersected my path, my life, my story with his goodness and his grace. I was on the way to arrest his people. And he intersected his grace with my life. And you can't, you can't go a day without being wholly amazed that God would be so involved in his story as to chase him down with his grace. This, by the way, this is in line with what we've seen in our Old Testament. See Psalm 139. The psalmist writes, God, you've searched me. You know my story. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You know my going out and my lying down. You know everything I'm going to say. You hem me in behind and before and the psalmist, just like Paul goes, That's, that such knowledge is too lofty for me. I want you to hear it. Lean in. The God of the Scriptures is not some distant, deistic grandpa sitting up on high, wholly uninvolved or uninterested in this world and in your life. He's not way up there. And by the way, it's also not some kind of cosmic force like karma that's sort of blind and uninvolved, but kind of balances thing out, things out in the end. God is deeply, personally involved with your story and mine. And that is something that right now we desperately need in our world, is it not? That this thing is not spiraling out of control. That, by the way, your wounds, your past, your brokenness, your hopes, your dreams, your present difficulties, your pain, he's, in, he's involved, he's near, he's at hand. What's so amazing about the story that we see in the Bible is God's not just involved, but he enters into the story. He enters in so much so that he, comes in, he becomes a part of that story. And what does Jesus do when he enters into that story? He goes to individual people, broken people, hurting people, outcasts, people facing injustices, and he he goes towards them. He gets so involved in the story that the pain and the wounds and the hurt and the brokenness of the world, he gets it on himself in the form of a Roman cross. 
whatever we want to say about the God of the Bible, however we want to think about the God of the Bible, he's not a thousand miles away, un- unconcerned and uncaring about your life, about the things going on in our world. The first idea that we have to kind of wrestle with is that your story really matters. And by the way, time out. For some of you in the room this morning, that might be all you need to hear. That might be all you need right now is he's with you and he cares and he's involved so much so that he's willing to get in the story himself. Now, that's, your, that's point one. Your story really matters. Point two is your story can't be everything. It can't be everything. It must be a part of another. That's, that's point three. But what do I mean by your story can't be everything? If you think about it, each of our stories, they must be attached to or tethered to something else, some other narrative, some other story, or they will be impossible to define. They will always be adrift. It will be impossible to know how to orient each of our individual stories. Let me illustrate this with uh, my kids. This is Collins. Uh, she's nearly four. Um, and here's what's been going on in our, in our family recently uh, with Collins. Uh, by the way, I don't know where they came up with the terrible twos. It's the terrible threes, okay, for all three of my kids, all right? I don't know about you. You tell me you have a different experience. Um, but here's what's going on with Collins right now. Uh, when we say no to her or we say something like, hey, we're going to go do this thing. You need to put your shoes on. Like anything she doesn't want to do, uh, this is her new response. So can I have a second ice cream cone? No. We need to go brush our teeth because it's time for bed. Um, here's her new response. And by the way, kids only see things through the lens of their story. They only see the world through my my lived experience, my feeling, my story in the moment right now. Here's her new response. She, she, She folds her arms like this. She goes, you don't love me. And then she goes, nobody in this family loves me. Now, would I be a loving father if in that moment I went, no, Collins, that's your story. Man, that's your, that's your truth. Man, I, I wouldn't want to say otherwise. That's your experience, and that must be really hard for you. And uh, that's going to be tough to deal with. Um, nobody loving you in this family. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the last thing I should do, I don't want to judge your story, Colin, so you have at it, and oh, that affects my story now because I guess I don't love you, and I need to think through my story. No, that'd be ridiculous. Her her lived experience is just that. It's her lived experience. It's her story in that moment. And if it's not tethered to something else, then our our lived experience, our story, our moment-by-moment experience of our life will be impossible to define. I mean, we'll float, we'll bounce back and forth, we'll float on the the winds of whatever's going on around us at any given moment. This is a silly example, obviously. Let me give you one from from my my own heart, my own life, a little bit more serious. This is Sarah and I. And uh, my parents, I said earlier, they divorced when I was two. And that was, a, that was basically, their, their divorce and the, the hurt and pain of that was the backdrop from which a lot of my first, the first decade of my life got written. Uh, and if you have been through divorce in the room, uh, your, your child of somebody's gone through divorce, uh, then you know that it doesn't ever really leave. It's sort of this cloud that hovers in life, and sometimes it rains a lot stronger, and sometimes it's over there, but it's always kind of there. And, uh, and, and I'm, I share that story with you. We love to process that more if you've never been able to here as a church. Um, but in my, in my story, here's how this goes. Uh, we've been married for 12 years, and when things are kind of off 
with Sarah and I or we have conflict or something, which is usually my fault. Uh, we have some kind of conflict or things are off. Uh, we have a season where things just aren't kind of clicking. Then my story and my experience of my story in that moment, here's what it tells me. And it still tells me this. Uh, marriage, but in that Christian marriage idea, it's all just a sham. Like, this is all a big fraud. And your marriage is a fraud. All marriages are frauds. Everybody's just pretending. Um, you can't trust it. If you think this thing's in, in it for the long haul, just give it time, and you'll find yourself in the exact same place that all these couples that have broken up have been in and that your parents were in. And that's my lived experience. And I, and I have that lived experience frequently. It's a part of my story. But if I don't take my experience and my story and tether it to something else, in this case, namely the covenant we made 12 years ago and what we believe about fighting for marriage and what we believe about what God says about marriage, then my lived experience and my story will be completely adrift. I'm seeing this actually pretty regularly in our culture right now. Especially, let me, let me speak for a moment, especially in the kind of the Christian deconstruction movement that we're seeing in our culture right now. And if that's you, by the way, if you're here this morning and you're going, I got some significant questions about the church or the church wounded me, or you're here this morning and you're going, I got some doubts about the Bible or the Old Testament or the Jesus stuff. I don't really know if I buy it. Then we hope this is a safe place for you. Like, I hope you don't feel like you gotta come in here and pretend you don't have those to be a part of this thing called following Jesus. Bring those questions and bring those doubts. I still have doubts and I still have my skeptical things in me and I'm still questioning. I hope this is a safe place for you. And by the way, some of the things in kind of Western Christianity need to be deconstructed a little bit. But if, if you are only rooting your experience, only rooting your deconstruction if you're only tethering that to your lived experience, your feeling about it, if you're only tethering it to your story, then A, ultimately I think that will be intellectually lazy on your part. And B, it might be really damaging to your soul. Let me, let me illustrate it for you. Uh, I know a lot of people in this room, probably I'm guessing, have been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. And in this podcast, this is Joshua Harris. He, is, uh, he had written that book in the 90s called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, so he was a big deal in the kind of evangelical circles over the last 15 years. He was part of a large church uh, that uh, kind of had some problems and fell apart. And recently he said this, and I want you to see uh, his deconstruction experience. And he's now abandoned his Christian faith. He says he doesn't buy any of it. And in this podcast that's been recently released by Christianity Today, uh, he was speaking towards his experience. And I'm just gonna quote him directly here. Here's what he said. He said, it wasn't for me that this theological question came up and I couldn't reconcile it. Now, note, before we move forward, he said, it wasn't some theological or intellectual issue. I wasn't looking at the resurrection or creation or the Bible and its canonicity. I wasn't looking at those issues. No, listen to what he says. It was really an outworking of the hurt that was in my life, the hurt in my experience. My deconstruction experience was circumstances coming and just stomping me. You know, my own failure and things falling apart, relationships being broken, and I'm just trying to pick up the pieces. And I wanna challenge uh, this, this narrative in our culture that everything comes down to my story. First, it's intellectually lazy. And second, he's doing the very same things my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter is doing. My experience, my story, my truth, that determines everything. 
So get out of the way. Respect it or go away. And he, you can even hear in his interview how untethered he is, how confused he is. And here's what's scary. This is the very thing our culture is being taught to do. I'll let Dawkins do the heavy lifting. We got Dawkins today. Yeah. Here's what Dawkins says. There is something infantile in the presumption that somebody else has a responsibility to give your life meaning. That's infantile, especially if it's a God. Then he, he continues. The truly adult view, by contrast, is that our life is as meaningful, as full, and as wonderful as we choose to make it. Now, this is more the academic statement. Here's how it's being expressed in our culture. The idea that you're the center of the story. You're the main character in the story. Everybody else are bit players in your story. This is being affirmed and reaffirmed to everyone in the modern Western culture. All that matters is your lived experience, your story. And could it be that Dawkins and our culture have gotten it wrong? Could it be that when we do this, we become woefully untethered and our lives become impossible to define? Let Let me show you with our third point. Your story must be part of another. Let me illustrate it with, with this. Um, how many of you like puzzles in the room? Be proud of it. Raise it high. More than I would have guessed. Raise it high. Yeah, keep it raised there. I want to see you. I think you're all weird, okay? All of you that just raised your hand, I think you are weird. Uh, I don't understand. I've got some friends, especially in COVID, I found out that many of my friends, uh, when they get together with their family, um, with their own kids, I mean, I'm doing this with your kids sounds terrible. Uh, they get together with their family or their kids or their extended family at Thanksgiving, what they do is they're not watching the Cowboys game, they're puzzling. And they've got their little system, you know, so-and-so does the corners and -and so-and-so does the edges and they've got like, I'm gonna work on the blues and they have like the box gets certain things. And when I, by the way, my family never did puzzles and when I do a puzzle, I got no strategy. And y'all are like, that sounds right for your personality. Um, So when... my friends tell me, oh, it's so, they, have, they put music on, like Taylor Swift folklore, and they're just sitting there, and, uh, and they're listening to this, and I'm like, they say, this is so relaxing. And I tell, I'm like, what about this could possibly be relaxing? You're gonna dump out 1,000 jagged-edged cardboard pieces that are trying to hide from me and then spend hours trying to find that piece as it hides from my attention. And that's supposed to be relaxing? We had a puzzle in our house that we, we tried to do some puzzles. Uh, Clark actually brought a really hard one over that he thought was funny to watch us do. It, lay, it sat on our dining room table for about five weeks. Um, we would work on it occasionally. Uh, we would all get really frustrated and mad at the puzzle and each other. Um, and we eventually got more and more ground worked on it. Clark told me afterwards he completely did it on purpose. Uh, and so eventually we were, we were almost done. Clark and Pam came over. They were working on it. They helped us finally finish. And guess what happened? We got to the very end, and what happened? One piece. And that always happens with puzzles. Nothing about puzzles is good, okay? Um, for those of you that really are nerdy into puzzles, let me give you, I, I, I did this for you. I went and looked up. People care about such things. These are the hardest puzzles in the world. Um, so I went and Googled them for you. Uh, that's, that just looks like my version of what the afterlife would look like if you went to the wrong place uh, doing that puzzle. And this one right here, I don't understand this one at all. Like, it's got horizontal and circular. Um, that sounds terrible. This is more about my alley right here because it only takes like eight seconds and I can get it over with. Um, so let me, let, let, me, let me show you what I mean by this. 
the, it's the front of the box, right? The front of the box. It orients and gives shape to, it gives purpose to every individual piece. The individual pieces, without their part of the puzzle, the individual pieces, they actually end up becoming completely impossible to define. I think our culture's gotten it completely backwards. It's like one of those individual pieces saying, I am, this is who I am, this is my story, get out of the way. It's impossible to to define. It's impossible. It doesn't have any beauty in and of itself. And what we're going to see with Paul in this letter, what he's getting at, and I think this is so relevant for us, is he's found a story. He's found the front of the box that orients everything to his life. Here's how he says it. He gives it a full run-up with this kind of introductory formula. He says, here is a trustworthy saying. Here's a saying that deserves full acceptance. Here's the story. It's the front of the box that orients everything in his life, that gives beauty to all the individual pieces, that the Messiah Jesus, he came into the world, and it wasn't because he was mad, and it wasn't because he was out for blood. He came into the world on a rescue mission. He came into the world to deliver and to save the broken things, to deliver and save the broken people, sinners, he calls them. He came into the world on a rescue mission to put all the broken things to right, to through his people to then fight for justice where it's not. It's a rescue mission to deliver individuals and whole nations, whole, all of the world. It's an amazing thought, is it not? Paul says, the God of the Bible is on a rescue mission. That's the story that I'm connected to. And I want to give you four insights that we're going to see from Paul here, real fast, four insights. Uh, and if you can orient to these things, then it very well might help you understand where you fit and your story fits. Four insights, they're really fast. I'll put them on the right side of the screen. Notice Paul's language. He says, in me, he can't help, but he does this all the time. In me, left to myself, take God out of the equation, the worst, the worst. Now, this is not uh, false humility on Paul's part. Like, I know a lot of us are like, hey, come on, Paul, like there's Hitler. Like, you're better than that. We always go to Hitler on that example. Um, like, you're not as bad as that guy. And it's also not, it's not false humility, nor is this some kind of psychologically damaging worldview. I hear that from uh, our culture some now. The Christian idea, Christians are always looking down on themselves, they're talking about how they're sinners, talking about how they're bad, their stories about how messed up they are, that's sinner language, and that's the opposite of what our world is telling us, where everybody's special and everybody's unique and everybody gets a trophy, and the Christians come along and go, sinner. And we gotta wrestle with this. What does Paul mean? I think he wants to draw your attention, Timothy's attention, and he's drawing his own attention to this idea. That very same hubristes, that very same thing that led him to respond in violence, it is in every single one of us. That thing that, that, thing that looks at God and says, no, 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 my way, not yours. That thing that looks at other people and says, I'm the center of this story, get behind me. That thing that is at the heart of all of the competitiveness, all of the brokenness, all of the backstabbing, all of the lying, all of the hurt, all of the wounds, all of the injustice at a micro and macro level. When we call that sin, I think Paul goes, we all got it in us. And given the right conditions, 
For him, it led to violence. And some of you, the sinful heart that you have, it's just been, it's never been given the right conditions to fully bloom the grossness and evil that it has. And some of you were like, no, mine has, I know it. But that same heart, where Paul says, it's in you, it's in me. Paul says, I get it. In me, I am the worst. But then stop there. His grace was poured out. In him, I am the best. Look at what he says in verse 16. For that reason, I, even I, if you don't think about your story, Jesus followers in the room, if you don't think about your story and go, the worst, but I, even I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his patience. And now he's made Paul, this literally is the word that we get like the prototype. I become the prototype. What's the prototype? It's the thing that you say, this is the best thing of that. This is the example. Paul says, I went from in me the worst to now in him, the prototype of what it looks like to be an adopted son of the most high God, holy and blameless with that story. Tim Keller says it this way, pastor in New York. He says, the scripture's message is that I am more sinful and broken than I ever imagined. And yet in Jesus, I am more loved and valued than I ever dared dream. Is that not beautiful? And when you think about your story, you, both sides, of both clauses in this sentence, have bo- you have to have both of them. In me, I am the worst. But in him, I'm the best. More valued in love than I ever dared dream. And then he, he tells them, he tells Timothy, he now, his digression is a little bit over by 18, and he kind of gives us insight as to why he went on the digression in the first place. Hey, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command so that in keeping the prophecies once made about you, your story, and that by recalling them, you might fight the fight well. In this gospel story, with our eyes always remembering his grace poured out on us, he says, in this, I have strength to fight the battle. Hey, Timothy, you're in a difficult city, Ephesus, where the culture doesn't really get it, and they think that what you're doing is weird, and they're, they don't, they, they're not gonna wholeheartedly accept it. And they, they might even violently respond to you. And you're trying to walk around saying that Caesar is not king and Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is the king. But Timothy, in this gospel message, with his grace poured out, strength, you can fight the fight well. And without this, insight number four, everything falls apart. He says, look at verse 19. Holding on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith, to miss the gospel announcement, to forget how that is intersected with our lives. Paul's gonna name two guys who they've shipwrecked. Things have fallen apart in their faith. In me, I am the worst. In him, I am the best. And in this, we have strength. And without this, we have nothing. Paul has found a story, and it leads him to praise. Out of nowhere, he just goes, now to the king, eternal, the Lord, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory forever and ever, amen. That's my story to tell now. Paul has found a story worth living and a story worth telling. The grace of God has intersected his life. The rescue mission to rescue his soul, but also to bring 
goodness and rightness and justice to our world, Paul says, I've been swept up in that story. Have you? What's your story? My story, I have all that brokenness in my life, I have all that weird misconception of God, but the grace of God is pouring out abundantly on me, even me. What about you? I'm gonna give you a moment right now. I'm gonna pray, and as we sing, I just want you to be thinking about that. Just kind of settle into looking back at your life, looking at your life now. Is God a thousand miles away? Have you, have you thought about him being near? He's involved in your story. To that end, let me pray. Father, what an amazing king we serve who doesn't sit distant from us, high and mighty, looking down on us, but instead you humiliated yourself, humbled yourself by entering into this story. Jesus, you got our brokenness all over you on the cross. And in your resurrection, you, it was the, the verdict, it was the statement that sin and death are now powerless, they have lost. And then you, inter, you intersected that story with my life of going into 10th grade, me, even me. So I'm, I'm amazed by that. Don't let a day go by where that doesn't just bring, want to bring me to tears and want to shout, the King, eternal, Lord, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever, amen. And we turn now to give you glory with our words and our song in this place. In King Jesus' name, amen. Y'all stand, let's sing. Thanks for that word, Garland. This next song talks about the fullness of our worth in Christ. And I know that my soul desperately longs for validation and approval from something other than myself, something external. And my heart is so good at coming up with all these idols. And in my life, I've placed my worth in relationships, in my achievements, in so many countless things. And there's a time in my life where God allowed all those things, one by one, to be taken away from me. And I walked away from that just so broken because my soul was so desperate for satisfaction, but I was so unsatisfied. And it was in that time that the words of this song spoke to me. And it was that gentle reminder that God, Jesus and his work on the cross, is so worthy of our praise, so worthy of our worship, so worthy of our trust. And that's my prayer for you as we sing this song, that we place our worth in the finished work of Christ on the cross. So let's sing this out together.
next song we're going to sing, I'm going to read a lyric from it. Yet not I. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. Did you hear those two words, weakness and need? I don't know about you, but I hate being weak. I hate being needy. In fact, my flesh just wars against any time in life where I feel like I have to be frail or I feel like I have to be dependent. And yet, in my need, his power is most displayed. So in my need, his power is displayed when I am open and honest about my struggle with sin. And his power is displayed when I take off the mask and I practice vulnerability. And his power is displayed when I let you all know my burdens and I ask you to share those with me, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we sing this next song, I just pray that we all remember that call to be in Christ is not to find some strength within us that's our own, but it's to show a world that Christ is strong in us.
that grace with you and your story, tell somebody. Tell your kids, tell each other, let's remind ourselves, Paul can't help but do it. 
If you go, I don't know. I don't think I know that story. You got questions. Maybe you got doubts. But you, you want to know more. Our prayer room is right through these doors. If you need prayer in your story, right through these doors, we'd love to pray with you, process the good news of Jesus together. And uh, with that in mind, fellowship people, we love you. Have a great Sunday. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you right here next week.